Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here after the recent deluge on a fine late summer's day on the wonderful south coast of Cumbria in the town of Grange Over Sands in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Well, it's lovely to be back again. It's always good fun to get out on a countryside walk. Here we are in Grange Over Sands. Mark, put us on the map. Yeah, this is at the southern end of the Lake District. On the road coming here, it says Lake District Peninsulas. This is the Cumbria Riviera. Famous, I think, for its Victorian heyday and the growth of the tourism industry beside the sea here. And the great sands ever shifting in front of the wonderful promenade. Yeah, well, this is a lovely setting. I've been up on Hampsfell in the past. I've been on Arnside Knot. And I've walked across the bay with Cedric Robinson. This is a setting I have some grasp of. But our guest today has a real grasp for it. Right. Who is our guest? Mark. (laughs) Nick Thorne. He's a resident, been here for many years, I believe. He'll be our guide to the heritage and the pathways of this wonderful setting. Uh, Nick has a, a great website. We will name drop that at the end of the podcast. But he also has an interest, as you hint there, Mark, about the uh, rights of way here because of his day job. Yes, he's a Lake District National Park rights away officer and therefore copes with all manner of issues associated with our universal love of walking. We'll talk about the history of the town, we'll talk about this wonderful landscape, we'll talk about the limestone up on Hampsfell, and we'll talk a little bit about these historic paths and how they come into being, which I think will be very interesting, and get a flavour for this part of Cumbria that, strangely, even after 61 episodes, we've not been here, because it's... um, I love Grange over sand. It's a place of a great affinity. People, once they get to know it, they, they love it. Right, well, I can see Nick awaiting us at the bandstand in this little public path that we're in. So let's go and say hello to him. On a gorgeous day in early August, I'm standing by the bandstand at Park Road Gardens. What we are here to do is to meet Nick Thorne. And I'm delighted to say, alongside the dog, I've got Nick with me today. Lovely to see you, Nick. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Welcome to Grange Over Sands. This is not the first time I've been to Grange. It was about four years ago since I was last here. But I'm in the company of somebody I think who knows a great deal about it. What's your connection with Grange? Well, I'm not a local, obviously. I'm from the south. But um, we've been here almost 20 years now. And uh, wherever I tend to live, I look up the local history because that's partly what I'm interested in. That's partly my work, looking into old records. So I tend to dig out local history stuff. And then I get more interested in it, as you do, because it grows upon you, doesn't it? It does indeed. And where are we at the moment? Tell me a bit about this park. Well, this is the only park, really, in Grange. We've got the ornamental gardens down the bottom, which is commonly known as the Duck Pond. But this is uh, the only formally laid-out park. It used to be Market Gardens. It was um, bought by the Town Council in about 1930 and laid out. 
So this wonderful structure before us, the bandstand, can you describe it, Nick? It was originally built down on the promenade. So it was built about 1902, and it was on the prom. Uh, but the ladies didn't like sitting listening to the music with the steam trains going past because all their dresses got covered in soot. So in, when they built the park here, they moved the bandstand to this place. So uh, during the summer, most Sundays, we have a band, either a brass band, jazz band now and again. And um, this whole area will be full of people. And on a day like this, all the grass will be full of people sitting oh, around as well. How lovely. I live about five minutes walk away, so we can hear the band from our back garden, which is even better. So it's still used, and it's still popular, and you can see it's being used today. A lot of people come down and just sit in here. It's quite a nice meeting place. Indeed. And um, we've got fantastic water lilies as well. The roses are just going now, but the lilies are marvellous in here. Yes. A lot of the gardens in Grange, like the promenade, the duck pond, here, a lot of volunteers look after them. Um, they're district council owned now, but mainly volunteers do a lot of the planting, a lot of the schemes, and a lot of looking after them. And on the metalwork, there's the Red Rose of Lancashire. What does that imply? Grange is now in Cumbria. It was in Lancashire. It was in Lancashire, north of the Sands, so it's North Lonsdale. Lancashire used to go all the way up to Coniston. That was in Lancashire and Hawkshead. But there was no land um, connection to it at all. So the connection was across the Sands. So it was Lancashire, north of the Sands. I've never really understood why, but Barrow was in Lancashire as well, Dalton, Upper Furnace, High Furnace. But now we're all part of Cumbria, and of course we're going to be part of East Cumbria soon, aren't we, after yes. the unitary authorities. Interesting to know how Grange itself came into being. What was it first? Well, legend has it that Grange, the word Grange, meant the grain store for the grain produced by the monks at Carmel Priory. Um, and they produced grain all the way up to Hawkshead. They had lands right up there. And the grain came over here before it was shipped out. I'm not too sure how effective the port was because it was very sandy and not much water. Low draft boats. Obviously. Low draft boats, yes. Um, and then it became basically a small fishing and farming village. And it wasn't until the railways came in 1857 that it really started developing as a resort. Um, a lot of wealthy landowners from Lancashire would build villas. These villas along here, not the bungalows, but the, the villas along here you can see would mostly have been built by Lancashire mill owners and wealthy Lancashire folk who came up here for their holidays. And it grew and grew and grew from there. Alongside Park Road there are a gallery of villas of handsome houses so clearly it was a, a stylish place right from the word go. Park Road Gardens is named after Park Road. Park Road isn't named after the park which is the sort of fascinating little thing you pick up when you're researching local history. So all this land here was owned by Reverend James Park so that's why it's Park Road. Which is why it's called Park Road Gardens and not Park Road Park I think that would have been too complicated for people to understand. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? So before we make our next move, Nick, can you give us a bit of a clue as to what we're planning to do? Well, I'm hoping to take you down to see the site of the Lido, um, cross the railway, onto the promenade, which is um, Grange's finest asset, all the way along the prom to the station, up through Eggersack Woods, and then up onto Hampsfield Fell and Hampsfell Hospice. And then um, it's all downhill from there. Now we'll make our first moves on this grand little expedition. We'll go down to the prom. <laughs> It was lovely coming over that cast iron bridge, over the railway, down a ramp, onto the promenade. And it is a place that's a throng with people. 
Our first view is across the estuary, across Arnside, which is a remarkable view in itself. It's spacious, you can feel the salt air. It's an odd place, Grange, in the fact that the railway cuts the town off from its main asset, which is the sea. Mm. Um, if you think of Arnside over the road and Morecambe, the promenades are alongside roads. And this is quite unusual in the fact that you have to cross the railway to get to it. So the railway stopped any development down here. It's made it what it is, this traffic-free, fantastic sort of resource. And I think people have always come here. We came down Clarehouse Lane, mm -hmm. and Clarehouse Lane and down at the far end of the prom, Windy Harbour, originally were about the two only accesses to the shore for folk of Grange. You can see out there it's all sandy now, but it used to be rocky and muddy. So there wasn't anywhere... When you came down here, there was nothing for them to do. There was no buckets and spades and things in those times. And I think it's just grown and grown and grown as a tourist resort, but it's a different sort of resort than a bucket and spade resort. It's not that... It's a more genteel resort. It was known for its white cottages and ferns, flowers, the woodlands up the back, rather than kiss-me-quick hats. So the whole notion of to promenade almost fits this perfectly. Can you explain the word? Well, well, it's exactly as you said, to promenade, walk up and down. So promenade as a feature is really the description of the act because the road up the top is the esplanade. So ard must mean something, or A-D-E. I'm not quite sure. I'll have to go home and look it up. It can't be that hard to find out. No, very good. <laughs> <laughs> and just where we're standing... I can look through a little gap in a fence and I can see buddleia growing, wonderful purple flowers, and they adorn something that looks a little bit sorry. Yes, it is sorry. This is our Lido, or Lido. Um, it was actually Grange swimming baths originally. Lido is a fairly relatively new term. Um, it was built in the 30s. I think in the 30s there was a lot of health drive. There was quite a lot of swimming pools built in Cumbria at the time, up um, Shap. Lazenby, places like that, they had swimming pools built in the 30s and the Lido was one of them. You can see it's quite a functional building. It's not like Saltdean Lido, one of these Art Deco style buildings. It's a, it's a rudimentary building. What you're looking at through here yeah. is the swimming pool and the uh, diving boards. Oh, crikey. And you can see it's been built out into the bay. Um, so it's taken a bit of the bay away. It was first discussed in the 20s, I think, and it was actually designed by the town surveyor at the time. Um, 1932 opened, and I've got some uh, I've got some pictures for you of the opening ceremony. Oh, how impressive! And the uh, the BB Water Squadron, which was the uh, the bathing bells competition on the opening day. He's got crowds of people there. Crowds even. of people, yes. absolutely heaving. Um, Furnace Railway, or whatever the railway company was at the time, LMS, I think, they ran special trains from Morecambe to come round here for the day for the opening ceremony. And it was all filled with seawater through a filtration system. It was unheated. Right. Um, quite a lot of locals learned to swim here. My wife's from Barrow. She learned to swim here. My wife and her father used to catch the train from Barrow, go swimming. She says it was freezing cold and she hated it. But there you go. That's another story altogether. But actually... That throwaway comment is why we're looking at what we're looking at now. In the 80s and 90s, there began to be troubles with the, um, the storage system, the water storage system, falling numbers. People started going abroad. They didn't want open-air swimming pools at home. And it became unviable. Oh, here's, here's one of our trains going past. One of the nice new northern rail trains. Falling numbers later, it led to closure in 1993, and it's never been reopened. And... Um, 
Now, uh, things are happening. We, we've had many, many plans to do things with the Lido. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's going to happen this year. The District Council have approved a light touch redevelopment. Uh -huh. What they're hoping to do is make the structure stable and safe, stop further deterioration, refurbish the buildings for access, um, make all areas of the site open to the public, including the diving platform. And it's the diving platform and the shape of the pool that um, this has been listed it's a listed building. You need to get Tom Daly in. Well, I, yes, I know. It's going to be quite interesting to get back in there again because I've never really been in. I think we ought to stride a little bit further, but do a little bit of promenading ourselves. Well, just, uh, just before you leave, here's a postcard from the open-air swimming baths. So this was posted in 1940. The nice thing about these sort of postcards is you can read the back as well. So oh, um, yes. I, I love the stories on the back. So this is dear Roy having a lovely time here. I went in the baths yesterday. It was grand. These baths are open air and I enjoyed it very much. The place is quiet. And I went for a sail this afternoon. I just love reading the backs of these. You could write an entire book oh, yes. on, the, uh, on the stories of postcards. <laughs> I'm walking off the promenade onto the salt marsh with all its natural regrowth leading a couple of hundred yards to the water's edge. Nick has generously brought all these wonderful postcards from way back when and I'm holding one which shows the promenade, people in a little rowing boat and people paddling on the shore. It's like a seaside in a sense because there's just no greenery, it's just a shore. It's changed radically. Can you tell me a bit about this big change that we can see, the greening up and the rearrangement of everything? Yeah, well, being an estuary, the channels move every single night. It's generally caused by the rivers rather than the sea. It's the rivers coming out that erode. So the Kent? The Kent and the Keir. Um, you can see the sands over there, over the other side of this fairly narrow channel. This isn't the river channel at the moment. The river channel currently is right over the other side. Um, and it just chops and changes, it can change overnight. A lot of the year the river has been right where we've stood here. We're, we're on the edge of the grass at the moment, looking down at the mud and the sand. I mentioned earlier on about the Lido, and you can see why people wanted swimming pools, because you wouldn't tend to go swimming in this sort of water, this sort of seawater. But when the tide's out, it's quite shallow here, and you can wade across um, on the sands if you really want to. It's a bit dodgy going on the sands and not really particularly encouraged. Um, but because the rivers move so much, the salt marshes tend to move with them. So over the other side, so you can see Silverdale and Arnside over there, particularly Silverdale. This salt marsh was over there 30, 40 years ago. Um, and in fact, now you can go over there and you can see old nets and posts that have been exposed for the first time in 30 years. And instead, all of the sediment moved over here. And it's, whether it's natural or whether it's partly man-made with the uh, causeway and the bridge being built for the railway changing the water channels, we don't really know. Um, but what is happening at the moment is that this salt marsh is decreasing. So where we're stood now, when I first moved here 18, 20 years ago, you could go half as far out again. So we've lost, in the last 5, 10 years, there must have been about another 30, 40 yards of grass that right. has gone in the last 5 or 6 years. Um, and it's still being nibbled away. But what's nice is that with the channels gradually moving back over here and the edge of the sand, edge of the grass moving towards the promenade, we've got a lot more bird life than we used to have. So you can hear the curlews and you can hear the oyster catchers a lot more than we could 10, 15 years ago. Um, it seems to have stopped this year. 
we haven't had any great easterly storms. It's the easterly storms that tend to wash away the top. And once the grass goes, the sand goes quite quickly afterwards because it's the grass that's holding it together. Um, this is salt marsh grass we're on. You've got the uh, little purple flowers of thrift, I think. And then inland, you can see the taller, greener stuff. That's Spartina grass, which is an invasive species, which Natural England have tried to get rid of here, but failed. I think they're just waiting for nature to take its course, and Absolutely. hopefully that will take it away. Um, so you can see uh, how different this is when you're looking at that postcard of basically rocks, sand, mud, um, small little boats, and you can see one of our piers there as well. So mm. they built a pier here um, before the promenade existed. Grange was called Peerless and Peerless, spelled in... Without pier? Yes, peel, peerless as in a peerless resort and peerless without a pier. Um, 1875, Morecambe Steamboat Company built the first pier here. And the idea was to provide a place for people from Morecambe and Fleetwood to come to Grange for the day. Uh, the town folk didn't particularly want it, you know, all these commoners coming over from Morecambe. But I think the purpose of building the pier was to get further out into the channels to enable the deeper draft boats to come here. So the Morecambe Bay Steamer Company ran steamers. We had the Morecambe Queen, the Yorkshire Lass, Britannia and Sunbeam. And the Sunbeam was the last recorded steamer which called at Clarehouse Pier in 1910. So they've had no steamers since. Clarehouse Lane Pier was originally built at Peel Island in Barrow and the idea was to export their iron ore from there but it didn't really work and when it started falling into disrepair a local businessman here bought it so he bought a pier, took it out of <laughs> the channel at Peel Island and built it here instead. Um, so that was our main pier and you can see it's quite a magnificent large structure. And Nick has given me the, the postcard and it shows two sail ships docking beside this jetty which is about 150 yards out with a broad front to it rather like you see at Ullswater or Windermere. Yes I mean look at the amount of people on the end of the pier they, they weren't just going there for the boats it's instinct isn't it if you're walking along the beach or a promenade and there's a pier you go out on it and it's odd isn't it why do we do that why do we go out on a pier when actually you don't get any better view from there um, it's just an instinct to be above water, I think. That's why we love the British Pier, isn't it? Yeah, we love being in the waves without being yeah. threatened by getting wet or something. And uh, at Clarehouse Lane, there used to be a, a, a quite a big hut at the end of it. Not too sure what it was, but um, there's uh, old photos with blackboards with the yacht spray being advertised as sailing at two o'clock, which may have been one of those boats you're looking at, where they oh. presumably took people out oh. on a little sailing tour across right. the estuary. And presumably there were also little dinghies to hire for people to go out rowing. What we didn't mention earlier on about the development of Grange was the health purposes of Grange. So we've got three big hotels. You can see one hotel above the station there, which is called the, uh, the Grange Hotel. That was built with the station um, by the railway company, and it's designed in the same way as the station. And it was effectively, you build the railway, and then you build things to attract people to use your railway. So it's a double-edged benefit. And then round the corner, there's the Netherwood Hotel. Um, and they were all hydrotherapy centres. Uh -huh. So people used to come to Grange for the health benefits. They were recommended to come here for the CM. It was like the first recreation that people had to improve their health. Before they ever discovered getting up into mountains, yes. they kept well clear of the mountains. They came for That's the right. health-giving waters. And you can just about see at the very far end of the promenade, so the promenade's about a mile long, at the very far end, there's an iron bridge that goes over the railway. Um, that's Blaweth Point. And that bridge was originally built 
for the Netherwood Hotel. And it was so people from the private residence could get to the bathing machines which were on the beach here. And so there must have been bathing machines there, probably here, so people could change in comfort. The particular postcard I was referring to a moment ago with the five sailing boats on, the story on the back, this is 1910, and it sums up why people were here. It said, uh, Dear Agnes, hope you're having a nice time. Uh, we leave here tomorrow for where I don't know. I think I would rather have been in Leeds than here. Excuse the pencil, I am writing this in the waiting room at the station. I am supposed to be on the prom getting the sea breeze. So obviously uh, that is somebody who's been bought here for the sea breeze to get well and they don't really want to be here. They want to be back in the dirty, smoky Leeds. <laughs> so they're sitting indoors at the railway station. <laughs> I find that quite funny. Just looking through postcards and old stories, nearly all of them talk about health. There's a convalescent home up on the fells. Um, a lot of people did come here to recover from injuries or ailments. Um, Meathop, which is the next village round, that had a sanatorium. So it was, it was a big drive in that, that era. And that's what partly led to the development of Grange as well, I think. And the promenade and the extent of it going right the way, it's a mile long. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it? I've got Garnet's Schilling Series Guide to Grange here, which was published in about 1869, and it describes the approaches to the sea. And it talks about the railway has marred the graceful sweep of line which the foreshore formerly presented. But then it talks about the mingled slipperiness and roughness of the shore leaves this the less to be deplored. But then it goes on to say the great requirement of Grange is an extensive promenade. So in the 1860s, they realised that they could do with something this side of the railway for people in Grange as, a, as it was a developing tourist resort. Nothing really happened for a long time. But in um, 1890, Grange Urban District Council, which was the successor body to the Grange Board of Health, um, they decided that they wanted some new water supplies and new water system for the town because the town was fed by springs, Picklefoot Spring in the ornamental gardens and a lot of springs higher up the hill that came out of the limestone. Um, so there was no real water supply and there was no sewage system, so it basically went straight into the, into the sea. So they decided to build a reservoir at High Newton and then they decided to build a, a sewer along the shore. Front, front or the shore. Mm. Mr Porritt, who I mentioned earlier on, he's a, he was a JP. He came from a rich Lancashire family. He owned some property in Grange. He basically fell in love with the place. He became chair of the council. He said, why don't you build a promenade over the sewer like the embankment in London? If you think, you know, the embankment in London that's built all over the Victorian sewers. Um, and they said, that would be fantastic, but we haven't got any money. So he gave them the money for the promenade. He also funded the tea rooms, the bandstand. He funded the Clarehouse Lane ramp that we came down. Um, and he insisted on a ramp on the basis that a lot of people who visited Grange were in bath chairs. So he long predated the Disability Discrimination Act and Equality Act, but he, he basically said he wanted people in bath chairs to be able to get to the promenade on a slope. And that's why we've got that fantastic slope going up for the bridge. It was Holker, or Duchy of Lancaster, who owned all the foreshore, and the town council bought the land from him, bought the land a strip, and then they built it. I've got some letters that describe how it was built. Uh, they first of all built about a two-foot-high concrete wall, and then on top of that small wall, they built a bullnose wall, so it, it sort of curves up and round, and the height of that wall is exactly the same as the highest high tides that you get once or twice a year. 
So it's really good that in 1894 or 1904, they had actually worked out the exact height of the highest tides. Tides do go onto the prom two or three times a year, but only for a couple of inches, really, and only when the wind's in the east and it's a very high tide around the full moon time and usually at about 12 o'clock in the day. How they did it, they built the wall and then they filled in behind the wall with sand. <laughs> and all the sand was dredged out of Morecambe Bay. So um, I, I, we do have a letter from 1897 that explains how it was done. Uh, they had a floating suction dredger and it describes the potential difficulties because of the tides and bad weather. You could only work six days a fortnight for four hours a day and sometimes the sand was pumped 150 yards. And you can't imagine that happening now. Um, there is now a plan to reface it all because the concrete's crumbling after 100 years. Um, the District Council have got a large amount of money and the planning process they've had to go through just to reface it is incredible. As you think that in shifty, 1904 shifty. they basically just pumped the sand out of here straight, straight into the prom. No messing. And then they topped it with tarmac. And of course tarmac 1904 was pretty brand new. Um, and Trowbarrow Quarry, which is over on Arnside, straight over the bay, was one of the first places that tarmac was made. Invented, you could call it. So it was invented in Lancashire and put down on the, uh, on the prom. And I think it's the same tarmac now. And you just look at it now. You can see a whole mile length of wall. And What happened in the age of the railway and that Victorian age is absolutely staggering. While we wander back across this broad, it's 200 yards of natural regrowth, which leads us back to the promenade. We walked a little further and we've come beside a facade of a structure, which is, I don't know, is it Grange Station or what is it? Well, yes, this is Grange over Sand Station. And uh, it's interesting you should say Grange or what is it? Because Grange over Sands itself is an interesting name. It used to be called Grange. If you look at old maps, mm -hmm. so I've got a map here from 1850, which is just about when the railway was built. Crikey. And you can see it was only Grange at the time. And then the Reverend James Rigg of Grange, uh, he got fed up with his post going to Grange and Borrowdale. So he added over Sands to Grange and that's it's stuck ever since. So and of course the notion of over sands was the fact that people came across the sands. Came over the sands and we were over the sands from Lancashire. Again Lancashire north of the sands. So yes so that's why it's called Grange over sands but if you look at Grange over sands online now you get all these starky comments like it's actually called Grange over grass because of the because <laughs> of the salt marsh. And in front of us just below the facade of the Grange over sands station there is a bench it's painted black, it's cast iron, grapes and the squirrel at either end, painted red and green, but it has a lovely seaward view, a classic little feature. These benches were all built by the railway company. Um, for a while, the squirrel and the grapes was one of the symbols of Furness Railway. And there's lots and lots of these in Grange, you'll find them in Ulverston, you can find them in Barrow, um, there's a few in Arnside, so they're dotted along Furness Railway as part of the um, facilities they provided. And you can see that uh, on this one, there's a little plaque, it's Diamond Wedding Anniversary, presented to Jean and Arnold. Um, 
The Town Council did a survey of benches in Grange to see how many benches the public domain were looking after. It was something like 103 benches in Grange, which reflects the age of the population here. And nearly all of them are sponsored or donated by various people. So there's um, somewhere there's a map of benches of Grange, which I, I'd quite like to get my hands on. That's the sort of thing I quite, uh, quite entertained. I think it was actually one of my friends went around on his bike logging them all. The interesting thing, of course, about these benches is that they tend to be older people who wanted to sit, they want a sedentary view. Is that something of the characteristic of, of Grange originally, and what is it like now? I think that's true. Um, when I moved here, I was only in my 30s, and uh, one of my colleagues said, why are you retiring so early? You moved to Grange to die, not <laughs> not to live, which I think is a little unfair, because there's it has got a higher percentage of elderly people or older people in Grange than elsewhere in the area but it's becoming a younger place so in my avenue we've got 14 houses they were all lived in when I moved here um, four or five of them are now holiday cottages or holiday lets but we've got uh, two toddlers in the avenue um, there's uh, quite a lot of youth moved into the area and we've got the affordable housing at Burners that we passed earlier on so I think Grange is changing. It definitely feels a younger population when you walk around now. Okay, okay, I'm now older than I was when I moved here, but it definitely feels as though there's a younger generation in Grange. So we'll get a little bit further on this walk. We haven't gone very far. But I think, looking at your map, we've done about one-sixth of the planned outing. Let's get into the woods. Yes, yeah, up into the woods. Well, we left Windermere Road and climbed up into Eggerslack Wood. Immediately you're onto bedrock limestone and a, a, a thick coppice woodland, a very diverse one. And we've crossed over a couple of roadways and we've bared right and we've come to Eggerslack Cottages. Can you tell us a little bit about this setting? Yeah, well, this is Eggerslack. Eggerslack Woods is um, mainly owned by the Forestry Commission now and, as you say, it lies on um, limestone pavement. It was formerly coppiced and provided bobbins for the textile mills and wood for charcoal burning. There's, there is an old charcoal burning pit somewhere in there, but I've never actually found it. There's a real network of paths in Eggerslack Woods. It's very heavily used by people, but you know what woodlands are like. You can have thousands of people in there and not see anybody. You can lose yourself quite easily. Eggerslack itself comes from the Norse word Eiger, which means boar or the incoming tide, and slack, which is where we are now, slack cottages, is top of the tide. I can't imagine the tide came all the way up here, but uh, further down you can. And the notion of slack, I, I know it as like between Great Gable and Green Gable as an errand slack, as a dry, grooved valley, but here it means something subtly different. Well, uh, we've always understood it means top of the tide, but actually now you look at it, we are at this road runs in a dry valley. So maybe that's what it actually does mean. And that's the whole thing about place names and etymology is we think it means one thing, 100 years later somebody decides it means something else. It's wonderful to come up this path, up through the woodland, the sun's coming through, there's holly, moss and an old wall, and we're coming up to a little hollowway, which in limestone is pretty unusual. Could you describe it to us, Nick? Yeah, well, sunken hollowways, things I tend to associate with the south and the wet land, coming from um, Sussex, we have sunken hollowways that are something like 30 feet deep and it wasn't until they actually tarmacked them in the 20s that they stopped sinking. Um, so every year people would either dig out 
the slush or um, it would just get washed away in the water. Water and usage tends to make you go down and down and down. And you're, you're right, it's quite unusual in limestone pavement. It's unusual in Cumbria in general. There's not a lot of sunken hollowways, not deep ones like this, which is about six foot deep. I'm not quite sure whether this is natural or man-made or a bit of both. Where we're standing looks natural, but if you look to your side here, these are quite big chunky stones and I wonder whether they've actually been moved. But it's very nice and as you say, with the dappled, the dappled sunlight on the moss, it's a very attractive little feature, isn't it? Oh yes, yeah, so you feel you're in a magical place. That's why going for walks is so important because you look at this, I know this was described in a document in 1796, so you can therefore say at least 200 years of usage, people going up and down here, not just for leisure, uh, they would have been going to Hampsfield, which is over the other side of the fell, so it would have been a through route. Every time you come up here, you get that feeling of cultural history and cultural continuation. Walking isn't just about going up to see a nice view on the top of the fell, which doesn't particularly interest me. This is what interests me, the cultural heritage and the, the connection with your ancestry in the past. Even though I'm not an ancestor of Cumbria, you can still feel that connection with people. You were mentioning lower down that the lower part certainly was a watering way. What would that be? I think it was purely a way for the residents to get to the water supply, which was route and well, which um, I think we may have passed, and I haven't seen because it's dried up. Sometimes it's running, sometimes it's not. So in many enclosure wards, you'll find things like quarry ways, which are the way to the quarry, um, salt ways, sand ways. Sometimes they were like a salt way was for transporting salt, a watering way, I'm pretty sure, was just to get to your water supply. We'll make a little stride up through this hollowway. It's rather an endearing feature. Well, we've made it, hooray, to the top of Hampsfell, to this rather stark square limestone structure with metal railings on top, which rather catches the eye in a setting with open thorn limestone outcropping, and the sunlight is ahead of us, facing on. So we're in the shadowed side of the hospice. And there's this unusual Greek word, or words, above the door. What's the story that goes with this? Well, it was built by Reverend Remington, who lived in Carmel. He built it in either 1834 or 1846, depending on which book you read. Um, he was the vicar of Carmel. He used to come up here every day. And uh, he did build it, it's called a, the hospice, he built it as a shelter for wanderers. He called it his thank offering for all the beauty he'd seen on his daily climb up to the summit. And you said this is the top of Hampsfell. Actually, the top of Hampsfell is about 50 yards that way. Oh, yeah. Um, so on the OS maps, you can see the top of it. But the OS trig point is now on top of the hospice because it's now higher oh, yeah. <laughs> than the, the high point over there. This is deemed to be the part of the fell, in other it words. It is. It's 727.3 feet above sea level. Magic. Now, the inscription above, you mentioned it was Greek. Uh, Wainwright, in his usual dry wit, said uh, outside over the doorway is an inscription that will be Greek to most visitors. How you pronounce it, I don't know, but it actually translates as rosy-fingered dawn, which is um, a quotation from Homer. And I think it's because the doorway faces due east. Oh. So at the equinox, the sun will be exactly shining into the front door of the hospice. Right, it's coming from Wernside in the Yorkshire Dales, yes. in other words. Yes, I've been up here at sunrise to take photos of the sun through the steps here. And it's, it's actually quite fantastic up here on sunrise. Um, I came up one September, about 
half past six in the morning. I thought I'd be the only person up here. There was about five people up here. I was quite disappointed. <laughs> Let's have a little look inside then. Now you get the different sound sensation of being in a small stone space with a fireplace in the northeast corner. Uh, and there are plaques with lettering on. Take notice, it says here. All persons visiting this hospice by permission of the owner are requested to respect private property and not by acts of wanton mischief and destruction so they possess any more muscle than brain. I have no hope that this request will be attended to. G. Remington. Anyway, on either side there's a question and an answer. So that's worth coming up here to read and it's all about the setting. And then there's a biblical phrase on the other aspect of the ceiling. A fascinating place. You can see these beams are pretty solid. They're beginning to rot a bit, aren't they? But they're, they're obviously original. Yes, quite. Yes, and there's new glass in the windows, well, I imagine. First, so, and originally there, weren't, there wasn't anything, because oh. uh, is it one of the poems actually mentions that uh, the, windows, the windows don't have anything in them. Open to the four winds. Open to the four winds, yes. Very good, that's right. And then this poem, the questions... Um, which is where we're going next. It says, A flight of steps requireth care. The roof will show a prospect rare. So let's go up these steps. Wow. Here's a toy. Right. You can see which direction everything is. But as to what everything is, you need to come to get a Nick Thorne, and the clue is in the numbers. Right. Well, it's interesting coming to the top. There's a dial with uh, numbers, which are the degrees, all the way around, and a very crude wooden pointer. But fortunately, for those who are unversed with the view, there is a, a metal plaque with the numbers, the degrees, associated with them, so 193, people will be happy to know, is Blackpool. Whereas, if I look down it, number 342 is Wetherlam. That's all well and good. You need a Mark Richards to tell you the view. And I'll have a go. It's quite a challenge doing it off the cuff, but I'm looking towards the sun, so that's looking west, and there you can see Black Coombe and all the fells above the Dudden leading to Cor, Walner Scar, and Dow Crag, Coniston Old Man, Wetherlam, and Bow Fell, and the Langdale Pikes, there's Piker Stickle and Harrison Stickle, Old Scarf, and through the gap you can see, just see Skidder. Over Dunmail Rage you can see Lonscale Fell. And then to the right of that, the Helvellyn Range and Red Screes with the gap of Kirkston Pass. And then you see Coldale Moor and High Street and Harterfell above Kentmere and Long Sleddle. Then you see the Windfell Ridge. And then above Whitbarrow, you can start to see the Howgills, wonderful shapes. And you can see Lambrig wind turbines backed by Bowfell above Garsdale. And then you swing round into the Middleton Fells, Crag Hill, and um, Wernside, 
and distinctive tabletop of Ingleborough. And then you round into the Bolland Fells and you've got another group of wind turbines above Littledale swinging round a Haythornthwaite Fell. In front of all that, you've got the estuary of Morecambe Bay flanked by the various communities Hesham Power Station and on a good day and I can't quite see it you can see Blackpool Tower as the indicator implied but there's the great view of Morecambe Bay which is the sea bend in Latin there you are you wanted to know that anyway Nick. I can't quite believe that you you just said I might be able to tell you more I have my 1917 pocket guide to Grange over sands and district in my hand here and uh, at the back of that is a pull-out map Fabulous. Of the fells. The outline of the Lake District Mountains as seen from Hampsfell Hospice. I was going to get this out and show you and you have just recited every fell without even looking at it. (laughs) In order, how on earth have you done that? I was going to say I'm blown away, but I'm getting blown away by the wind up here anyway. That is very impressive. I see the benchmark of the Ordnance Survey, which you mentioned. Yep. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm quite astonished. So this this thing that you were talking about, the uh, the wooden pointer, pointer, is not a toposcope, which is some people, but it's, it's something called an alidade, we think. It's not original to the hospice. If you look at old um, Victorian photographs, this wasn't here. So it was put on, we think it was put on by um, some Navy man who, who lived here and particularly loved it. And um, when we came up those quite narrow steps, uh, I saw you all holding onto the handrail. Do you fancy doing that without the handrail? I think not. It was built without a handrail. Older guidebooks from like 1890 have actually said, the steps need a rail. <laughs> I don't think I would come up, particularly in this wind. You no, just wouldn't amazing. come up there without the handrail. It needs to be a hospital for those people. A hospital hospice. And um, you could see the fireplace below. Yep. And you can see the funny little... Uh, outlet. Chimney outlet where the wind obviously pulls it through for the draft. I've never actually been up here on and I had a fire. I keep meaning to come up with a bag of coal on New Year's <laughs> Eve. So I was just talking about the fire there. I bought with me um, a little book published in 1860 called The Sketches of Grange. And it was written by a lady who came on holiday a lot and then lived up here. Um, and um, lived in Grange for many years. And she talks about the hospice and describes it um, in much more flowery language than we use today. But she talks about the, the fireplace, which she calls spacious. It's not didn't seem to me to be a particularly spacious fireplace. And she talks about it affords accommodation for the tea kettle and its worshippers. The roof provides the water and the ferns and ling the fuel. Now, you look around here... There's no ferns or heather to be seen anywhere. And so it must have changed. The landscape up here, the the habitat must have changed quite considerably since 1860 because it's just now um, grazed off off grass, yeah. Odd to think there must have been ferns and heather up around here. Well, the one final thing we need to talk about that I think many people will think we've missed the point if we don't mention it are the sands themselves, the... Morecambe Bay Estuary and the journey over that that is a historic statement of how people got here really in many ways. Early travellers ventured across the sands so we'll have a look at that next. We've come down those perilous steps and thank goodness for the metal railing now and I'm able to look across Morecambe Bay And it's fascinating to see the way the tides and the movements of the water mingling with the sand 
creates a series of snakes winding all over that landscape. It almost must have been a challenge to get across there. What's the earliest references to this? Well, there's rumoured references to uh, Emperor Agricola Tacitus in AD 79 describing a dangerous passage of his army to the north. That could have well have been across the sands. The Romans definitely had a road here because they, they had a road from the shore at Kent's Bank to Flutborough, so they can only have come across the sands to get to Kent's Bank. Um, Robert the Bruce came across here in 1322. They actually described they went further beyond the sands of Leven to Cartmel, taking away cattle and spoil. And then they crossed the sands of Kent to Lancaster, which they burned. There's much more written evidence from about 1660 onwards. So George Fox, the um, oh, original Quaker, he was yes. taken to jail across the sands more than once from being arrested in Ulverston for um, preaching. Um, and then ever since then, there's been quite a lot of writings about the crossing of the sands. Um, Wesley came across here to do his preaching and um, those writings continued until 1857 when the railway was built and a lot of the sands crossing effectively stopped overnight. Right, fascinating. I have walked across the sands with Cedric Robinson some oh, 25 years ago at least. Cedric is the guide of, across the sands. Well, he's just retired actually. There's a new guide across the sands now. Um, he's appointed by the Queen the Queen's Guide, and his job is to basically go out in the mornings, find the crossing point, because earlier on we were talking about the sands moving every day, so they have to go out and find where it's safe. They take um, sticks with them, brobs. Laurel. Laurel sticks, yeah, Yeah. and put them in the relevant places, um, and they know the sands intimately. They've been doing it all their lives. Um, There's been guides for time immemorial. Not many guides have got lost. They don't lose many people. Uh, there's still cross-bay walks take place every couple of weeks during the summer, I think. Uh, and carriages crossed it as well. There was a regular coach route from Olverston to Lancaster. Um, wow. Interestingly, of course, they started at a different time every day because you could only cross the sands a certain length of time before low tide <laughs> and after low tide. Um, so they started from the Sun Inn in Olverston and they would have gone at different times. So they had two lots of sands to cross because they had the... Levin sands and then they had the Kent and Keir sands so it must have been quite uh, exciting doing that quite a lot of time I think they sunk yes. um, I mentioned Reverend Rigg who was the first vicar okay. of Grange he came across on the sands and his coach sunk and uh, he didn't want to get out but he, he did finally get pulled out of the coach and saved but um, all his documents and deeds for the church they disappeared into the sand, so he turned up at the church and couldn't prove ownership that he was the vicar of the church. Later on, about a month later, I think they found the deed box and um, recovered all the deeds that he had got. And other people suffered. Um, John Wilkinson, who was uh, Iron Man Wilkinson, who is a memorial to him in Lindale, he was buried three times. He uh, came across the sands and buried because he wanted to be buried in an iron coffin but he, he sunk in the sands. They retrieved him later and then buried him um, at Field Head Castle, Field Castle Centre, which was his house. But then when it became a private house later, they didn't want a dead person in the garden, so he was dug up again and buried again in Lindale Church. So um, he sunk in the sands. Uh, there have been some less entertaining accidents. There's been a lot of deaths in the sands over the oh, centuries. Yeah, must have been. And some of them are quite sad stories, like this... Um, one story about people coming back from the Whitsuntide Fair at Olverston who just got out of sorts, got lost, 
in the fog perhaps. in the fog uh, well uh, since I've lived here one chap died in the in, in the fog and he was only about 20 yards off the shore and um, he was talking on the mobile phone and he, so he could talk couldn't orientate himself and um, then the phone went dead which is very sad and of course we had the Chinese cocklers 10-15 years ago wasn't it those accidents still happen they're always sad there's a lot of writings about probably over romanticising the crossings of the lakes uh, and um, as if (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as if. You can find a lot of old books. I've got one here from 1820, which is a chap called Leonard Atkins, Letters from the Lakes, and he gave a very descriptive picture of the crossing. He was coming across from the other side. Um, there could not be fewer than 40 carts, gigs, horses, chases, etc., with men, women, children, dogs, and I can hardly tell what beside, all in the river at once. <laughs> he goes on to say he was in the hotel in Lancaster I was aroused by the bustle of preparation about five o'clock on one of the finest mornings my eyes ever opened I went downstairs I was regaling my senses with the fumes of coffee when the driver unceremoniously burst into the room for God's sake he said make haste the tide is down and we should have been at this time by Hesbank if you delay we shall all be drowned now we don't set off down the M6 um, thinking that nowadays do we Um, well, not in my car, but I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Mrs Wakefield, who I mentioned about, she did the sketches of Grange I just quoted from about the Ling. Um, in 1830, she describes the passage of the guide, which you just mentioned, the Queen's Guide. And she says, A strange, wild-looking figure with masses of long, unkempt hair as rough as the sheepskin thrown over the old white horse. And um, after seeing us across the dangerous parts, this queer, uncouth figure <laughs> suddenly appeared at the carriage window, thrust in an old cap made of sheepskin and asked for a recognition of his services. Because I think the Queen's Guide gets about £30 a year. That's it. It's not a... It's not, not a, a King's Ransom. It's not exactly a... Pay. He gets a free cottage. But um, it's not exactly a highly paid job. No. So the crossing from the Islandside shore goes to Kent's Bank and... Uh, the older settlement, of course, is Flukeborough. Yeah, well, actually, I think there was a number of crossings because I think from Arnside, which is where a lot of the Crossbay walks set out now, they sort of go down the shore a bit and then across to Silverdale. But um, there is, old, on some old maps, you can see crossings across to Arnside direct, but the main route was Hesbank to Kentsbank. It's about 8 to 12 miles from Hesbank to Carmel. Uh, they came ashore at Kentsbank, Carmel, and then they went to Flukeborough, and then quite often they'd have to stay in Flukeborough because they couldn't get across the Leven Sands in the same crossing that they could get across the these sands. And of course then carried on from there, you'd go to uh, Kerbin Isleth and you'd go across the Dudden Sands to Millam and, and up. So if you were going to the west coast, you had three sands crossings. Well, forsake this lovely spot because there's a, quite a chilly breeze come on us Sun's now. Sun's gone. Sun's gone. Just one veil of cloud come over the sun. Everywhere else seems to be sunlit. We'll head back down to the town and get a little bit of shelter and have a final few words. Lovely. We've come down and reconnected with the restricted byway and we've come onto a trap. But this is probably an ideal moment too with the call of a buzzard in the background mewing there it's a wonderful sound uh we we have quick fire questions nick which are quite innocent Uh, lovely warning about this oh yeah we love this what was your first lakeland memory first lakeland memory 1975 the summer before the hot summer um having 
lemonade sparkles in Hawkshead actually melting on the sticks before we could eat them quickly enough. How lovely, eh? What a thought. We came up from Sussex, so I think we caught we caught the motor rail. Do you remember motor rail where you put your car on the train? Yeah. We drove to Kensington Olympia in our Morris Traveller, put it on the motor rail, got off at Carlisle, um, and we camped in Grange and Borrowdale. And then we camped at Grisdale. So yeah, family holiday. Wainwright or Wordsworth? I quite like Wainwright's writing. He was a bit of a pain in the neck because he tent people on paths that weren't footpaths, which has caused me quite a lot of work over the years. For example, the coast to coast, some big in town and places like that. Have you a favourite Lakeland food? Cartmel sticky toffee pudding. Sweet tooth. Well, the sticky toffee sauce, more than the pudding. We don't buy the pudding very often, but we buy the sauce to put on ice cream. Oh, the tempter, tempter. Have you a favourite view? Hmm. That's quite difficult, isn't it? When you go over Lowick Fell, and you drop down to Broughton, and you get the view of the Dudden Estuary there, I, I don't know, there's something about that, I always like that view. Mm. So it's an estuarine view, or possibly Ullswater, right. when in the autumn. Well, we certainly, in our last episode, when we were at Millham, were captivated by the Dudden Estuary. Yeah. And we've had one guest who chose it as a special place as well, Ian Brodie. So it's oh, right. commonly appreciated. Is there any particular walk, a memorable walk, that you'd like to recommend? We've just done it. You can't beat your local walk. Living in Grange, I mentioned earlier on, it does feel as though you're a bit on holiday all the time. And to have a walk that you can walk along the promenade with the estuarine views and the feeling of being by the, not quite by the sea, but, you know, the estuary, and then you've got Coppice Woodland, and then you've got Open Fell, and all the cultural heritage at the time. How many walks do you get that much variety in, in one go? You, you don't do. When you go on the fell, you get a fell walk. You don't often get all of the things combined in one, one go. So it's quite hard to beat your local walk, and that's from my front door. Have you a favourite Cumbrian pub? The Crown Inn in Coswold, where we first lived when we moved up here and um, it was funny actually when we first went there it was a real old-fashioned pub strip lighting it was mainly old farmers and my wife used to go in with us on Saturday and she was quite often the only lady in there and they, they thought this was marvellous and it was quite old-fashioned and this was only 20 years ago they sort of did it up and turned it into a real proper wooden floors and nice tables it was a fantastic pub so I'm, yeah. I'm, I miss that we haven't got the pubs in Grange because yeah. we haven't had that market town history Indeed. if you were the prime minister for a day is there one thing you would do to enhance or safeguard the landscapes of cumbria <laughs> if i was prime minister for a day the glover report into national parks recommended that national parks become the rights of way bodies i think i would implement that because we have a different this is dropping into work rather than personal stuff. We have a different attitude towards access and rights away than the county councils. We're set up for that sort of thing. So I would do that. I would make rights away the responsibility of national parks. Right. Very soundly thought. When the day comes and a few friends gather at somewhere that means something special to you, maybe to scatter your ashes or your bones be buried, where might that be? My ashes are going to be scattered around the boardwalk in Rusland Valley, just out the bottom of Bowth, where me and my wife first worked fabulous well nick it's been a fun time i've learned a lot about grange over sands and the setting that i didn't know before thank you for coming thank you
journey's end we're back down in Grange Ever Sands the light has left us Mark uh, it was interesting Nick said earlier on didn't he that the uh, geographical location of Grange Ever Sands means that actually it loses the light relatively early in the day and so it's been today it's um it's got very cool as well yeah well we've been very fortunate it's been a beautiful day and we've uh, gained an understanding of Grange Ever Sands that I didn't have before mm. and and I love the view from the top of Hampsfell. I really like Hampsfell. And I'll tell you what, that uh, interesting question you asked uh, Nick about his favourite walk. And he made this point, I hadn't really thought about it too much before, but yeah, you get the seaside, fabulous um, woodlands, then you get the open fell and that view. I mean, really, are there many better views no, in the it, lakes? No, I'm not sure. No, I know. This is the thing. If you go to somewhere like Oldswater, you go to... Hugh Scar Hill and stand back from it yeah, all. And here right. you stand back yeah, and it is a 360 degree view in yeah. every sense of the word and mountains and the shape of the fells and everything they're all there to be identified and of course you get all the Yorkshire fells as well which is magic. Well you get all of that and the sea and I think that's the kind of additional factor here isn't it which you don't get in the heart of Lakeland. One thing I will mention is Nick has a fantastic website of local history. Um, you'll find it if you just Google Grange Over Sands Local History, but we will put a link onto uh, our own webpage for Nick. And what you can find there is a photo of the inside of Hampsfell Hospice. With You spoke some of the words earlier on in the podcast, Mark, but there's quite a lot of them, but they're brilliant. These little poems, these verses that were put up there by... Remington. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I've remembered. Really, really fun, actually. Um, and uh, a little bit mischievous, I think. Um, but anyway, worth looking at the website for. Um, now, next up, I think we're Western Lake District. Wasdale Head. And all being well, we'll see a famous fell runner. Right, well, looking forward to that. Uh, but for now, from wonderful Grange Over Sands on this um, late summer's evening, we're saying goodbye and thanks for joining us on Country Stride. <laughs>